Welcome to the pod, Ben Lamb, ladies and gentlemen, huge, colossal, dare I say, mammoth, colossal biosciences, founder, co-founder, and CEO, welcome. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Super excited to be on the podcast and be talking all things entrepreneurship, Animoca, and colossal. Terrific. Yeah, we uh, talked before about your entrepreneurial journey to date and incredible mission and that you're on right now, this quest to leave the hobbit hole from the Shire and go to Mordor and revive a species. So please peel that back for our listeners, if you will. Yeah. So for people that don't know what we're working on with Colossal, we're the world's first de-extinction company. So we're working on bringing back extinct species to fill an ecological void that their absence has created, as well as uh, species preservation. So how do we apply all of these technologies around thoughtful, disruptive conservation, not to just de-extinction, but to saving existing species and giving new tools to conservationists? That's something that we're really passionate. I feel like taking my headset off and doing like a victory lap around the table, it's just so insanely inspirational. Yeah. It's, it's really, it's really exciting. I've been fortunate enough to start a handful of companies over the years and work with people that are much smarter than me to achieve different outcomes. But on my worst day as an entrepreneur, sometimes you do have ups and downs on this journey, but my worst day here is still pretty awesome, right? It's like, I still go home and I'm like, we're bringing back extinct species and we're trying to help with conservation. So on the worst day here, it's still pretty awesome. So where are you right now in the journey? What's making you excited and keeping you busy day to day? Yeah. So what's interesting is I feel like my entire career has kind of led to the point of me being able to do this and almost like training me to do this. Because when you start a company, you have to have a lot of focus. You've got to trust your team. You've got to build a team of people that are much smarter than you. But there's always some context switching, right? And you kind of balance that kind of constant pivoting and tuning with some context switching, but keeping it really focused. What's interesting about this business is that there's new things that I never thought I'd have to do. There's a lot of context switching. So I will be on a call with an investor. I'll then be on a call with a conservation group halfway across the world. I'll then be on a call with scientists that we're trying to recruit. I'll then be on a call with governments or indigenous people groups. And these are all just different folks that, you know, maybe one off I had conversations with, but not all in one day. So, uh, you know, it, it was really interesting, the amount of context switching. So my days vary greatly. And so for someone that has ADHD and someone that, you know, really, yeah, dyslexia meets ADD. For me, it, it, it's a great business because there's so many things to work on, whether it's ex utero development, conservation strategy, or therapeutic for elephants, or partnering with a top research scientist on a species that maybe we haven't announced yet, right? And so in getting that ancient DNA, it's really a culmination of a lot of different context switching, but it's really fun. And like I said, on the hardest day at Colossal, it's still just amazing that I feel like I get to be George Church's like steward of his original vision here. And I just, I'm just incredibly grateful to him as well as our team, as well as our incredible 
investors like Animoc and others that have supported us on this crazy journey. Because the original pitch was we can bring back the mammoth and it will help with climate change. We have all the technologies. Please write us a check. And it's come a long way, obviously, since then. Yeah, I think of one of those old movies from the 40s of the switchboard operator, like Philadelphia 099er, and just plugging in and you're switching all these calls, but doing it in a Renaissance man way where you have to be able to dive deep and be relevant and actually lead in that. That's a real amazing exercise. So tell us a little bit about your co-founder, Fester Church, and his sort of vision around that. Yeah, George, George Church is arguably, I, I personally, he's the smartest person I've ever met. He's probably one of the smartest people on the entire planet. He's also like 6'6". He has narcolepsy. He's incredibly kind. I always mention those things because there are no things about him. He shares them openly, but these quirks are what make us unique. He's also an incredible entrepreneur. And one of the things that I love about him is because so many biologists, at least from what I've started to learn in the biology field, have different skill sets or they focus on one thing. George is really a systems designer. So coming from the software world and being able to look at systems and try to apply that thinking to software or biology is always interesting. I always like to say the hardest thing that we have achieved, people are like, what is your greatest achievement at Colossal to date? And I was like, well, it's not even the stem cell reprogramming work or the extra work or all the multiplex editing of the mammoth and thylacine genomes and a couple other species that we're also working on. It's not even that. It's the reprogramming a biologist to look in like a scrum and agile product focus and then actually help them think through things in a systems perspective. And so George is this incredibly kind, incredibly thoughtful, incredibly brilliant mind. It's also super interesting and quirky. But then at the same time, he is literally the most collaborative, most genuine person I've ever met. And what's been amazing is he's also the systems designer. So he knows how to look at the entire system and how things kind of go together. And so I love that. Fascinating. So I think of our fearless leader, the founder of Animoca, Yat, as also this expert in some fields, but like this broad system, right? Yeah. And so like when I sat down with Yat for the first time and explained this to him, he totally got it. He asked incredibly thoughtful questions. He understood where I wanted to go with the business from a systems perspective outside of me having to like sit there and walk him through every step. And so, yeah, when you find people like that, that you gravitate to, it's just amazing. Yeah. So I want to peel one thing back, which you mentioned that, well, first of all, as I understand it, let's go into this in a minute, but you're taking like an Asian elephant and you're merging it with, in my very layman terms, DNA from ancient mammoths. But in some ways, what you're doing with George is that you're taking DNA from Silicon Valley and merging it with like academia and science, yeah. right? And you're trying to bring that together, right? Yeah, that's a really good. I never really thought of it before you said that. Yeah, we like to joke internally and call it genetic reconciliation. I guess we are now doing that some with Silicon Valley and with academia. But ultimately what we're doing in the process is once you understand and can do, you can sequence both the closest phylogenetic relatives. So in the case of the mammoth, that's the Asian elf. In the case of the thylacine, that's the fat-tailed dunard. And once you're able to sequence that, which we all, we have the technologies to sequence the ancient DNA in the case of the mammoth, we actually had to take 54 different mammoth genomes and assemble them because there are so many fragments and over time DNA just degrades more and more. And so then you do comparative genomics to really understand the difference. And then you do functional testing and functional assays to start to understand where are the differences in the genomes? What do those genes do? How do those express? 
What do we know about it from different literature and testing? And then once you do all of that comparative genomics work, you then have your recipe to understand the difference. And then you can say, okay, well, of the million edits, what are the edits that really kind of exude, in the case of the mammoth, the cold tolerance and the phenotypes or physical attributes? And so once you identify that, you just start the editing process. And so it's a lot of computational work. We've built some novel tools around machine learning and AI already. We're continuing to advance them just to make that process easier. And that kind of gives you your genetic map, if you will, to start making the edits. And we're in the editing phase on both the thylacine and the mammoth, which is incredibly exciting for only a year and a half in. Man, so Jurassic Park, of course. We have to bring that up. We do get there a lot. Like, paint, paint the picture for the listeners. So you have this mammoth, like, what's Jurassic Island? Like, where is that? And what's going to happen when they actually go into the wild? Like, for me, that was the most mind-blowing thing for me of, like, not just, like, in a zoo. Like, you're yeah. literally changing the landscape and the whole ecology by yeah. reviving yeah, the species. So we think that we try to look for species that one, we can bring back, two, you know, serve a purpose in their bringing back, and then three, that actually fill an ecological void. And so I got a trip down to Tasmania to work with uh, local teams there to start to understand what is the rewilding component. Rewilding is when you actually take an animal and put it back into its natural habitat. Yeah, it's called rewilding. And there's been lots of ecologists and conservation groups that have successfully done that with Yellowstone, with the wolves, with other animals across the globe in Europe and others. And what's been amazing is they've seen incredible positive systems effects of reintroducing a keystone species, especially when it's an apex predator like the wolf in Yellowstone. And so when we reintroduce the thylacine, we think it'll really help with this concept called tropic downgrading, where it'll be the largest carnivorous marsupial back in that environment. It'll help balance the ecosystem I get rid of some overpopulated middle predators because that's what they feed on. And then with the mammoth, it's really anywhere in the Arctic Circle. We've started, obviously, because we're an American company with Alaska, given a lot of the geopolitical scenarios, we're not really focused right now on Siberia, which has an effect, obviously, on what we're working on. And so I just got back from meeting with the largest a private landowner, the head of Fish and Wildlife, the former lieutenant governor, both of which... Now, of Alaska, the, the second largest indigenous people group in Alaska is actually an investor in Colossal. And so the head of Fish and Wildlife joined our conservation board. So even we're not going to have mammoths till like 2027, and it'll take some time after that to get to really, to they're old enough to fully rewild them. We're starting those conversations now, right? And so it takes not just that systems design and the ability to bring back these species, but it's actually kind of looking at from ecological impact perspective, how do you rewild them? Where do you rewild them? When do you rewild them? And then it's making sure that we get all those stakeholders, not permission, but we get them on the journey with us early on so that they can be giving us that real-time feedback so we can constantly tune our modeling of like how and when and where. Fascinating. So I listened to the Tim Ferriss podcast and he's a big supporter of rewilding wolves. Yeah. And there's this article about how course of rivers are changed by bringing in wolves and, and it's absolutely almost counterintuitive you're like of course you want to take the wolves away they're dangerous and they're not good for humans but that's exactly why the whole you know, turns out humans are not good yeah, for humans right? we're not good for the environment yeah. Indeed, yeah. Right? yeah we're pretty bad for everything indeed you introduce the wolves and all of these unintended consequences that you really never thought of all occur and 
Can you peel back some of that? So let's say it's 2027. Let's say it's 2037. It's been a decade that there are now woolly mammoths in Alaska. What's happened to the landscape and why is that important? Yeah. So most people don't realize this and I didn't before I got into this. We talk about carbon in the atmosphere. We talk about CO2. We talk about how bad that can be from a global warming perspective. There's a lot of attention right now talking about carbon sequestration, methane, even methane suppression, which is about 30 times worse in the atmosphere, which are great conversations to be having. We're very focused on this 1.5 degree tipping point with the Paris Agreement. Those are amazing conversations that we need to have. Two other conversations that we need to have more of is, one, we're going to lose up to 50% of all biodiversity between now and 2050. So we do nothing. So we've got to build better technologies for that because that will lead to ecosystem collapses outside of the tipping point. In the second conversation, which is what that we need to have that you brought up, the Arctic tundra or permafrost. I didn't know this until I started meeting with permafrost researchers, meeting with George and got into Arctic rewilding, but there's actually 1.6 trillion metric tons of carbon in the permafrost. They're trapped in the permafrost. That's more than double that's in the entire cumulative atmosphere today. And so if permafrost melts, we're in a lot of trouble. There's more carbon and methane stored in the permafrost than anywhere else on the planet. And so what's terrible is that the permafrost in the Arctic region is actually warming about four times faster than anywhere else on the planet. So that's a cascading problem, right? And so we've got to start thinking about that. And colossal alone won't solve the problem. We want to be one of the nature-based solutions to that, but we need other advanced technologies to do this. And so what's happened is you have all these dead layers of fauna, you know, thousands of years that just continue to pile up year over year, and they just get frozen every single year. And then new grasses grow and then things, animals, other things die. And there's another blanket of snow and then it gets frozen. So it just keeps piling up. Unlike the rainforest, which is constantly overturning. If something dies in the rainforest, fungi and other things start to grow on it. It breaks it down. It's a more rapid cycle. In the permafrost, it's just layering and layering. And so what they've shown is that there used to be this ecosystem up there, which is now, it's now kind of a carnivorous forest. So it's kind of like some bogs, there's permafrost, and then there's these carnivorous trees, which are these very low carbon yielding. They're not great for carbon sequestration and they're extremely dark. They almost act as heat antennas where just heat permeates to them. Their dark work gets to eat. It permeates down through the roots and additional carbon gets released from those root structures, right? And so there's just these carnivorous forests. Before, back in what they called the mammoth steppe ecosystem, it used to just be these Arctic grasslands. And grasses are about seven times more efficient at carbon sequestration. And then you get this added benefit of the albedo effect. So everything that isn't absorbed about two to three times that gets actually reflected back into space, right? That radiation and heat gets reflected back into space, which is amazing. And so when you start to look at it, they've actually shown over the last 20 years with this incredible ecological study in Northern Siberia, that they've been able to not just lower ground temperatures, but lower and keep ground temperatures down by up to eight degrees. And why that's really important is that if you can keep the ground lower and make it cooler during the winter, then when the summer months come and the snow starts to melt and you get the grasslands, that top grass layer isn't frozen, but that next layer is frozen, right? And so if you can keep that about eight degrees lower, if it starts at a lower uh, point from a freezing uh, standpoint. So therefore, if the heat, if, if something's 16 versus negative eight, it takes longer for it to warm up to release. So it keeps that insulated. And so what they've shown 
is that if you remove the carnivorous trees, which they've done with tractors and bulldozers and whatnot, and then you rewild the right population density of cold tolerant fauna back into that area, it actually keeps the ground temperatures lower. They trample the snow and pack it. So it allows for the cold winter air to actually permeate lower versus kind of that insulin component that they're grazing and then defecation actually spreads the grasses much easier. And all these animals aren't really great at knocking down trees. And what's amazing is elephants love to knock down trees. So if you look at, which is crazy, and we, we always say, oh, plant a tree. They're like gaming the ecosystem by introducing And so like they've actually in studies with the African forest elephant that they actually know which trees to knock down and which trees to preserve. There's been incredible peer-reviewed scientific papers on this that have come out in the last years and how that last few years where elephants are actually incredible environmental modifiers, right? And so us as a business is, as we can build technologies to bring back these species and rewild them, there's biodiversity credits, there's carbon credits, there's ecotourism, there's all of these things that add benefit to their restoration, as well as we're building technologies which help other, cons that help from a conservation lens, other species. And then we're actually building entire populations of new animals that can live in unpopulated areas like the Arctic. So we haven't yet to find a negative unintended consequence of building mammoths and rewilding them. Wow. So we talk often about the metaverse and how you can create this whole new environment within this virtual world. But I think you're really looking at the lobe as a way to be, make some really positive ecological change. Like I didn't even think that was possible. I just thought, okay, let's keep the rainforest the way it is, but to actually change the ecology. Right. Yeah, we should protect it. And so I love all these things like Animoca and Untamed Planet and others that are like, how do we leverage the metaverse? How do we leverage that for education, for gamification, and then apply it to real world conservation, right? Yeah, and so peel that back and like, what's exciting for you and Web3 and the whole on-chain? Well, I mean, I think that Colossal, for example, is not just a Texas or American company. It's a worldwide problem, right? Like climate change is a worldwide problem. Loss of biodiversity is a worldwide problem. If we have the ability to build like games, educational content, and really get users from a decentralized perspective around the world, not just this demographic here or this demographic here, but truly kind of this like next gen DeFi type focused world that really wants change, that wants equality for all, that wants to help the world and make a difference. That is the Web3 community, right? That is, that is, yes, there's. You know, we've seen recently there's some bad actors. There's bad actors that will always game any system, right? But at the core, these are change makers. These are people that, you know, they don't want to just rely on the existing banking system. They don't want to just rely on the existing gaming systems. They really want a, to stand up for change and they want to be kind of an advocate for that change. And they want to own personal property. It's an, a, a true creator economy. They want the value of what they create. They want to be able to choose what they share and how it gets monetized. And they don't want all the big tech companies just stealing their data and selling it to the highest bidder, right? And so that community also cares about the planet. They also care about being good stewards of what we've been given, right? And so if we can have that true ecosystem of people that are supportive of our efforts, and we can build educational content, we can build like structures for the animals, like what is the governance of like how we reintroduce them? How do we take care of them, right? If we can even tokenize things like the carbon credits and create an exchange that encourages applications to the educational content and the gamification of some of this to get people excited and educated 
on conservation and ecosystem restoration. I'm really excited about the technologies and how they could apply to this to make it more viral and create an environment and economy where more people participate. I'm equally excited about the people behind Web3, right? Because those are the next generation change makers that we not only want their support, we need their support kind of in this journey. Man, I feel so much smarter already in this short session. And that's a fascinating vision. I've learned another word when I did some research here, which was mammophant, a mammoth and an elephant together. And yeah, wouldn't kids lose their minds to be able to have an NFT of a mammophant and you're following their journey and you're tracking them and then please have Queen Latifah and Ray Romano as uh, spokespeople. And, you know, everybody already loves woolly mammoths from Ice Age already. We definitely need to do that. We have not done that yet. We need to reach out to them. But, you know, Jack Black is in that too. Jack Black can play you in the movie. Like you have that Jack Black energy and vibe and I think he could, yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, I mean, these are all awesome people. And for us, we have some celebrities in the company, which is great. We'll always take more. But ultimately, our big thing is like, we really want to ensure that I'm a big believer that educational component and in urging some of those celebrities that can help push our voice, we're more than open to that. And really what we're doing, because we talked about this earlier briefly, was we're really creating that genetic reconciliation. So we joke and use mammoth, we use all these different terms, Arctic elephant, functional mammoths. But, you know, an Asian elephant, most people don't realize this, is 99.6% of mammoth genetically. An Asian elephant is closer on the family tree to a woolly mammoth than the Asian elephant is to an African elephant. These are actually closely related, right? And so that's why we start. That that, that 0.4% is like a fur coat, more or less. Is that well? There's more. There, there's dumb cranium. There's different skeletal structures. There's a fat layer. There's also an incredible amount of how they process hemoglobin and create oxygen. And how oxygenation is distributed at low temperatures. Trib B three. How nerve endings are essentially handled at extreme negative twenty to negative forty degrees. So it's a little bit more than the coat. Part of it, right? Like that's that was just me adding some of my scientific chops to the discussion. But oh, fascinating! Wow. I think creating this DAO structure where governance and people have say in a lot of the advocacy around what you're doing and really getting behind it in the same kind of passionate way that they would with like, I guess, Disney or Marvel or some other kind of content where they feel like they've grown up with and there's entertaining a game and other factor around that. Like there's so much to be done with that. If there's so much education and one of the things that we feel really important, like that's kind of core to our mission is radical transparency, right? And you can do that through, we spend time and effort and money on education, on social channels. We spend time and effort and money on game and content. We haven't announced it yet, but we're working on a potential partnership around a docu-series because we want to take people on the journey, let people in. It's super exciting. I think it's exciting to talk to George and some of the other people. But, you know, I'm sitting in one of our labs right now, one of the conference rooms in one of our labs right now. And it's amazing when you actually go on the tour and actually see that. So we're talking about doing cameras and how how do we open that up to the world so that they can see the progress, see the incredible women and men that are building these animals doing uh, cutting edge genetics. And so I want to switch gears a bit. One thing I love when you talked about how you're looking at the gene sequence and say, okay, there's where the thicker cranium or the fat layer or the fur, and you're able to hopefully 
hit that on the mark and be able to extract that and, and manifest that. And I think about the DNA of an entrepreneur. And you mentioned before dyslexia and ADHD. And interestingly enough, my entire career has all been around entrepreneurship and I surround myself with entrepreneurs. I, I'm fascinated to see how many do actually have ADHD or dyslexia and how it's almost like a superpower in some ways to be able to give them kind of an extra turbo boost. Can you, can you peel back a little bit about that? And like, I've written a bunch of stuff being a built a handful of companies. So I've written different articles around my experience, done a bunch of interviews on these topics. You know, a lot of times we're like, well, Ben's just an eternal optimist. Right? And I'm very optimistic. I believe in a world of abundance. I believe in a Star Trek future, less of a Star Wars future, more of a Star Trek future. So that's me. That's kind of like how I am. But at the same time, there are dark days, a hard journey. And I always say that sometimes entrepreneurship uh, is kind of a curse. Right? There are these things, these character flaws that you know, I think exist in entrepreneurship that makes people uh, want to be or drawn to entrepreneurship. Like I think I'm generally unemployable. So I don't think that would work for me. Hey, well, now you're on your fifth or sixth startup and really done good, right? So it's worked out for you. But I often say it's the most likely outcome is failure and yeah. it's pretty miserable along the way. Yeah. But other than that, Mrs. Lincoln, how did you enjoy the play? Right? Yeah, exactly. And it's one of those things that people don't realize. You know, like people see the products of entrepreneurship, a, a binary outcome, a fail or an exit, right? And then they see the funding as a success, right? But like last week, for example, to your point, I've been very fortunate to have worked with really smart people, much smarter than me that have like helped take my visions and help build these companies with me over and over again. And you know, what people still don't realize is that regardless of whether it's startup one or startup 10, last weekend I was on a three-day vacation because I hadn't taken one all year and need a little time off. I flew to another city for a private equity meeting. I flew then to Los Angeles and from Texas to speak at an event. I flew back and landed at 1 a.m. and I had an 8 a.m. lab tour with another investor. And then I had to go to dinner on Friday night and then that Saturday I had to be on another plane. Like, so I think that people don't, sometimes it's over, you know, glamorized because people read very much, yes. people read a book or they see a, a tagline. Tasmania to Alaska. Wow. As if you're drinking martinis in a private jet the whole time. Yeah, it's just not that at all. And it's like one of the places I stayed in Alaska because the part of Alaska I had to be in, we didn't have toilets. And so there wasn't heat in one of the places. Like th that doesn't make it onto the Instagram and that doesn't always make it onto a podcast or a video. So I broke my ankle in Tasmania because oh, oh, no. I fell in a wombat hole. And then I had to hike two miles. I'm back. sorry to laugh, but that's a wombat hole. Like if you're going to yeah. break your ankle in an yeah, Australia, yeah, that's yeah. the way to break it, right? So yeah, I broke my ankle on a wombat hole. And so then I'm like, oh, I'm yeah, and I had to walk to two. Laugh, yeah, I'm good. I'm totally fine now. But yeah, it's only a fracture, but it's like I had to walk two miles back to the cabin that we were staying in. And I was with a bunch of people and I didn't want to be like, please get me out. Someone carry me out of here. So I like walked back. Then I got worse because I just stayed on it for like two more days while I was in Tasmania before we flew back to Texas. And then, you know, then I'm in the, and you know, with, with, I typically schedule every 30 minutes during the day and I'm awake. And so when I land the next day, go jet lagged before I fly to Alaska to get pictures and x-ray. And so like that part of it doesn't always make it in the story, right? There's a lot that's to it. It's a different so, kind of grit. That's like a, yeah. you're, you're really, you're really all in yeah. and committed. And yeah, so could. 
Yeah. yeah. And then when you, and then worse, or then I had a series of, so then I went to a, and I fell on a glacier because I stepped and I was like, oh no, I don't want to hurt my ankle. Stepped wrong. And then I fell. So I, I'm kind of painting the picture like I have zero balance because I, I actually have quite good balance. I'm reasonably short. So I have a low center of gravity, but I literally fell twice in the period of six weeks. And I can't remember the last time I fell, right? Like maybe when I was like eight, but it's like, I fell twice and I literally strained a tendon in my arm. Like now I ripped a tendon, so I had to go to MRI. So those are the physical attributes, right? Because you're tired, you're jet lagged, you're flying around. And people don't realize. And when you show up to meet with like an indigenous people group or like a governor of a state, they want you to be on. They, they've got really great questions. They don't want you just to sit there and be like, I'm exhausted. My ankle hurts. My arm hurts. <laughs> oh, wow. Fascinating. Yeah. It's like at least two very location specific falls, a glacier and a wombat hole. I mean, it's a good story now. You get points for that. Yes. You think it's a good story now because I can like, tell it to you, but at the time it didn't feel like a good story. And those physical things also pound with some of the mental things. Share with yeah. us some of the mental gymnastics or ways that you become stronger over your serial entrepreneur career. Some things that you have really improved upon and learned along your serial entrepreneurial journey. And I think that maybe I'm just massively dysfunctional, but I am okay with being told no, or I'm crazy. Like I've heard that a lot for quite some time, you know, from businesses. And so I think one of the biggest traits that if you are afraid of rejection, I wouldn't even say failure. If you're afraid of rejection, this is just not the line of business mm. for you, right? It, it's just not. I remember one time I had a business with nine figures in LOIs. And I was raising money and I still got told no 70%, 80% of the time, right? It's still a numbers game, right? I've never seen one of these stories where it's like, I have an idea. I met a guy at a bar and he signed a hundred million dollar term sheet on a napkin. I have not experienced, I, allegedly those stories are out there. Walking down Hollywood Boulevard and saying, well, look at you. What are you? We're going to make you a star, right? I don't think I have yet to experience that. So maybe that's a good thing. Maybe at some point I'll experience that if that really exists. Can we go a little bit deeper with this just as a final note? Like what happens when people say no to you? Like, like just for some of the more, because there's a lot of entrepreneurs who are like maybe introverts or who are engineers and who have never had that uh, experience yeah. before. But what, what happens if people say no? I, I definitely, I've definitely evolved and learned through painful mistakes, not through trial and error. Like earlier in my career, when people would say no, I would get really pissed. I would just get really mad. And I'd be like, I don't understand why you don't understand this. And I had an attitude about it. Right? And so it took me learning from those mistakes and being like, look, we don't know all the criteria under which someone makes a decision, right? There could be something going on bad with their fun. There could be something going. And so I've just tried to take more of that optimistic worldview that I have towards like technology and science fiction and the world and the planet and the ecosystem. I try to take that now to that and say, look, you don't know why they said no, maybe it wasn't the right bit, but you never know when they're going to say yes again. But if you burn that bridge, you're never going to get a yes out of them because they're going to be like, oh, I don't want to talk to that jerk. And so early on in my career, I took it really personally. Now there's just so many things that are outside your control. And now that I also angel invest, I've got 70 plus direct investments outside of fund-to-fund -fund investments in my personal portfolio or my family office. And so I say no to stuff. And sometimes it's as bad as I'm just too busy. I just can't look at it. Sometimes I don't know how to diligence it. Sometimes I just don't believe in the sector. I may believe in the entrepreneur, but don't believe in the sector. 
And since other times I'll be an entrepreneur, I don't know anything about it. And I'm just like, you know what? I'm in the right span. I'm all in. I don't, sure. Whatever you need. I'll write more checks. Right. And so, so looking at doing that introspection and seeing that I even make these decisions, sometimes that don't make rational sense. And I've passed on deals that have hundred plus X's. Right. And so that's part of it. Right. And so the best thing that you can do is just focus on your business, make it succeed, build, not go negatively share it with them, but make sure that people know the success criteria that you hit and keep them informed and then build a relationship because you never know when you can help them or when they can help you in the future, or maybe your next business idea or next round is a perfect fit for their thesis. So I think that's one of the big lessons that I've learned early on is you just never know. And by the way, I learned that the hard way. I learned that by being an absolute prick about things when I was younger. It's, let's be real and vulnerable. And you were vulnerable. Yeah. Like, I lost my temper and oh, I totally lost my temper. There are still relationships to this day that I have thought about that I wish I had and that, that I don't have. Hey guys, anybody, anybody listening out there, Ben, sorry. He's all, and you know, I had some interestingly big technology companies early in my career and I thought that I knew better and I just didn't. So I just try to learn from that. And so that's one thing. So I just don't think you just can't take the rejection personally. And a big thing that I try to do is I've tried, I'm very routine based, right? And so I try to have this many financing or this many update meetings a week. And I, I try to stay to that. So even if I'm not fundraising, if there's people that I think are important that I want to keep up to speed on what I'm doing, I will do that work. And so I'll do those repetitions regardless of in life, right? Like working out anything, like if you don't do the work, you're just not going to get it. So I, I try to really, I love that. I love that so I really try to just do the repetitions. And then I also take that into my personal life, right? And so when I'm not traveling, I try to be pretty diligent. Like I don't drink alcohol. I don't have caffeine when I'm not traveling. When I'm traveling, I try to give myself a little bit of buffer. You need that little helper. Yes. My mother's little helper. And then I try, like, regardless of what I have going on, I try to get seven and a half to eight hours of sleep. And I'm sure that I work out at least three times a week. So I'd like to be doing it six times a week, but with schedule sometimes it's not. But those are the things that I always do pretty much religiously. So I read this thing a couple of years ago that they say the best athletes out there spend just as much time in recovery as they do training. And I wouldn't do that for years, like maybe until like 2019. And so like four or five companies in, I wasn't even doing that to myself. And so I now make it a focus of like, hey, if I'm going to go work 18 hour days, I got to make sure or fit whatever the number of hours is. I need to make sure that off time is really structured. I do turn it off. I'll meditate. I'll do a spa. I'll make sure I get the numbers hours. I'll spend time with my family, spend time with my dogs. Those are things that have to spend time in recovery or you don't get there. So once again, all these things, it's very easy. Hindsight's twenty twenty. It's really easy for me to say, these are the things I do. These are some of these things I started doing like three years ago. Sure, but that's why I want to extract it here because people coming up in their journey, they're going to listen to you. They may not listen to press or peers or parents, but they're like, wow, this guy's been on a journey and he learned hard yards by trial and error. And uh, it's something that I absolutely 100% relate to. That you know, Jeff Bezos says I get eight hours of sleep a night because it's good for my shareholders. Like Sleep is the foundation. It is. Yeah. That is the number one thing that I will not sacrifice. I will go into seven, but I try to do seven to eight every single night. Fantastic. Wow. Ben Lamb, ladies and gentlemen. Wow. Co-founder, CEO of Colossal Biosciences. That was as advertised. Thank you, sir. And to be continued. And I can't wait to 
see the dent you guys make in the multiverse in the coming years and decades. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. This podcast is for information purposes only and should not be considered as financial advice. Any opinions provided in this podcast reflect the views of the speakers only.